Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Let me take you back in time, uh, back to 2002, all right? A long time ago, right? Uh, directly following the events of 9-11, uh, Iraq was on the radar of the United States, both literally and uh, figuratively, right? We were worried about future terrorist attacks from uh, militants who would be using weapons of mass destruction, WMDs, right, to bring uh, annihilation to us instantly. And... Uh, Iraq was believed to be harboring these WMDs, uh, but for a while we just could not find any proof of it. And Donald Rumsfeld, who was the, uh, the Secretary of Defense at that time, uh, was asked about this apparent lack of evidence uh, of these WMDs, and his response became an instant classic. He said this, he said, Reports that say something hasn't happened are always interesting to me. Because as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. And we also know that there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things that we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. <laughs> the ones that we don't know we don't know. <laughs> and if one looks through the lens of or the history of our country and other free countries, it's the latter category that uh, tends to be the difficult ones. Rumsfeld was at once uh, mocked and praised for this distinction, right? And in 2002, it was his job to discover all the unknown unknowns uh, in order to make the United States and um, the world safer. Uh, the rest, of course, is history. Uh, but this morning, I want you to think of the distinction between known knowns and known unknowns and unknown unknowns, but, but think of it in, in the spiritual realm as well, okay? There are probably some spiritual things, right, that are unknown unknowns to us. There are things that we don't know that we don't know, right? I wish I could give you some examples of them, but then <laughs> we would know them, right? And they would be known unknowns, right? You still with me? But then there are some spiritual things that are known unknowns, uh, things that we know we don't know, right? Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons, <laughs> right? Why did Noah bring those mosquitoes on the ark, <laughs> Maybe on a more serious note, we know, for example, that Jesus is coming back. We just don't know when. That's a known unknown. And our minds love to dwell on those known unknowns, don't they? We like to try to solve the mysteries, to put the puzzle pieces together, to, to discover the unfathomable depths of, our, of the mind of God. And sometimes we spend so much time trying to know the unknown that I think we can lose sight of what we know we know. And I think that the Apostle John would have us focus on the known knowns, the things that we know we know. In this text from 1 John chapter 5 that I want to look at today, there are at least three different known knowns uh, that John would have us know and be sure of. There are, there are definitely some more and probably better and, and better ways of uh, outlining and understanding and organizing uh, this text than I've done, but I want to look at it in this particular way uh, this morning. 
Uh, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John is a small book uh, just before Revelation, a couple small books before Revelation. Uh, you can find it on page 961 of your pew Bible there. It's going to be on the screen as well. And because there's so much that's packed into these uh, 10 verses here, I want to look at them uh, just a little bit piece by piece. Would you stand with me this morning as I read? First, we'll just look at uh, 1 John 5, 11 through 13, reading in Jesus' name. There John writes, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for all of the, the known knowns that you would have us know for sure today and that we can be confident in and anchor our hope and our trust in. And Father, we pray for this morning, for our hearts, and my heart included too, that you would soften it to your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The, uh, the first known known that John wants you to know that you know for sure is that God has given you, believer, God has given you eternal life. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know. In the, uh, in the Greek language, there are two different words used for knowledge, for knowing, uh, epigenosko and oida. And these words are used all throughout the, uh, the New Testament, and sometimes they're used interchangeably, but there's a, there's a distinction between these words. Uh, epigenosko refers to, a, to an exper- experiential knowledge. Uh, you know something personally by doing it or by experiencing it, right? Uh, for example, I, I epigenosco that the summers in Phoenix, Arizona are hot and unenjoyable because I personally experienced six of them, right? I also epigenosco that I am not a skilled mechanic because of my various failed attempts at auto work, right? I, am, I know this personally. I've experienced it. Uh, however, because epigenosco is based on personal experience, it can be sometimes a bit subjective in its implications, right? There are some who enjoy that hot weather of Phoenix and argue that it's more enjoyable than snowy winters here. Epikinosko can be a bit subjective. But there's also this word oida, and oida deals with your intellect, with matters of the mind. It deals in black and white, in right and wrong. Oida seeks to give you a a clear understanding of a situation, both intellectually and factually. I know, Oida, that the capital of Minnesota is St. Paul, right? And I know that today is Sunday, May 9th, 2000. Yeah, 2021, right? I think that's the date, right? <laughs> it's Mother's Day for all, for all intents and purposes, right? But, but here in, in 1 John chapter 5, John uses this word oida as he talks about knowledge. I write these things that you may oida know intellectually, factually, truthfully that you have eternal life. So why am I making a big deal and this distinction about these Greek words for knowledge? Why is this important? In all reality, uh, in all honesty, the the difference really gets to the heart uh, of the assurance of your salvation. 
Have you ever gone through a period of your life, brothers and sisters, where you've, you've doubted if you're saved or not? Have you ever doubted your own salvation? And if we're honest with ourselves, I think that every one of us who are, who are Christians have gone through some periods of doubt in our lives. Sometimes the stretches are shorter, sometimes they're longer, in which we doubt, in which we wonder if we're really saved. We begin to wonder if, if we've done enough, if we've been good enough, if our repentance was sincere enough, or if that one sin, particularly that sin that we continually struggle with, and we wonder if God can forgive that sin, especially if it's the, the millionth time that we've confessed it this week. Oida knowledge helps reassure you of your salvation. I write these things that you may know. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, know for certain. Oida moves you outside of your own uh, experiences, outside of your, your feelings, uh, to the, into the surety of God's love for you in Christ that you may know and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. And eternal life is given to you by God and it's received in simple childlike faith. I'm blown away time and time again uh, by, by the faith that my kids have. And it's not because Liz and I are our great parents. Far, far from it. But we've told them about Jesus and they believe. They simply believe. And it's our, it's our tendency as adults to, to overcomplicate things oftentimes, isn't it? Uh, the, the, the story is told of a, of a seminary professor and the author of uh, biblical commentaries who, uh, whenever he got stuck on some deep, complicated theological question, would, uh, would have to remind himself of one of the simple truths that the kids sang today. He would remind himself, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And once he reminded himself of that basic truth, he, he was able to process and wrestle with whatever theological question he was dealing with. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Having childlike faith, by the way, doesn't mean that we become willingly ignorant of doubts and bury our heads in the sand to these difficult things that we might be wrestling with. But having childlike faith in Jesus simply says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Do you believe in Jesus? then you have eternal life. And John said in his gospel, to all who did receive him, to all who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you believe in Jesus, no matter the size of your faith, you are a child of God and have eternal life. And John reminds us that we have this eternal life, not because you've earned it or been good enough to receive it, but you know that you have eternal life through Christ's death. In verse 11, John says this, God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Eternal life is given to you because of Jesus' death for you. When Christ Jesus died on the cross, he died for you in your place and on your behalf. His death was the atonement for your sin. When you received Jesus, when you believed in his name, he gave, you became his child and he gives to you eternal life. And by the way, this, this eternal life isn't just a, a future far-off hope. It's also a present reality. 
God gave us eternal life. The word gave is past tense. Eternal life was given to you, believer, the moment you became a Christian, uh, whether that was at your baptism as a little child or later on in life. At that moment, God granted you, he gave you eternal life. And that means that you, right now, as you sit in this pew or on your couch at home watching on TV, you have the gift of eternal life right now. And we know that this gift of eternal life will be fully realized right in eternity, in paradise, in the new creation. And until that day, we wait eagerly for the return of our Savior King, knowing, fully knowing, fully realizing, fully experiencing the reality that we have eternal life through Jesus right now. We know that is a known known. The second known known that John would have you know that you know is that God hears your requests. And we see this truth unfold in verses 14 through 17. But let's just look at verses 14 and 15 right now. John writes, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. We know that we have the requests that we have, that he has, that we have asked of him. The Lord hears our prayers. He hears our requests. Prayer is, is, is a pretty amazing thing, isn't it, right? In prayer, we have instant access with the Lord God, with the creator of the known universe, the almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent creator. We pray and he hears us. And this means, as, as John reminds us, that we can be confident in our prayers and be confident when we pray. Have you ever sent a letter? Well, nobody does that anymore, right? Have you ever sent a, a text message, right? <laughs> and, and when you don't get an instant response from that person, you, you wonder, did that person receive the text message, right? Did she get it? Did I, did I type in his number wrong? Did my phone not send the message? And sometimes our, our prayer life can take that tone. <laughs> Is God really there? Is he really listening? But thankfully, we can be confident. We can be assured that, yes, the Lord hears our requests when we pray to him. Call to me and I will answer, the Lord told Jeremiah in our Old Testament reading for this morning. This means that no matter what, no matter what you are going through, the Lord hears you and your prayers. You don't have to wonder or doubt. The Lord hears you and he cares about what you have to say. Confidently come before the Lord in prayer. Tell him what's on your heart. He hears, he cares, and he answers. John says in verse 15 that we know, we oida, that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And we need to be careful with this verse. If, if we're not, we'll drift into the, uh, the, the trap of the, the name it and claim it uh, preachers, right? I don't think that's what John was getting at here when he wrote these verses. Uh, there's an important caveat that the, that the false prophets of the prosperity gospel neglect. When we pray our prayers, when we ask our requests of him, we do so according to his will, right? And that's what Jesus taught us to pray, isn't it? Uh, in the Lord's Prayer, we prayed, uh, Thy will be done, right? On earth as it is in heaven. And we acknowledge that, yes, God, that God's will, his desire will be done. But we pray in this petition that it would be done in our lives as well. 
And there's often a lot of questions surrounding God's will, isn't there? Often his will has been wrongly characterized as that secret path that we must discern or that known unknown that we must fully uncover in order to have a successful life. But all throughout Scripture, the the will of God is often connected to you uh, in your salvation and in your sanctification. Paul wrote to Timothy that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he said, This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. What is God's will for your life? That you would be saved and that you would be sanctified, conformed more and more into the image of Christ each day. The Lord hears your requests and grants them when when they're according to his will. And there are also some some tricky verses that we need to wrestle with regarding prayer and sin and death. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. John writes, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. <laughs> These are some tough verses that I'd, <laughs> I'd rather not talk about, but because they're here, we should uh, probably discuss them, right? <laughs> we can't just take a marker and scratch out the verses we do not like, right? <laughs> John says that there is a sin that leads to death. And death being, of course, in this context, spiritual death, eternal death. Uh, And yes, all sin separates us from God. Uh, We acknowledge that. But this sin that John is referring to here in verse 16 is a sin that leads to death, and it seems to be a little bit unique. A couple of things to note and to to think through as you consider this verse. Uh, First, we we should be careful not to create hierarchies of sins. John isn't creating different categories of sins, uh, like the so-called mortal or venial sins. Uh, Sin is sin is sin is sin, right? And another thing to note, that this sin that leads to death isn't just a sin that you randomly fall into one day. You don't just wander haphazardly into this sin. The sin that leads to death is, as one scholar put it, a deliberate, open-minded rejection of the known truth. It's premeditated. It's calculated. What it amounts to is a, is a total and utter rejection of the gospel, even up until the end of somebody's life. And as, as John writes this letter here, 1 John, he has in mind some of these false prophets who have, who have left the faith, who have abandoned the truth of the gospel for some false idols. And they, they were seeking to lead God's people away from the Lord. And so in this letter that John writes, he actually devotes quite a bit of time to warning of the dangers of following after these false prophets. And so when John says, I, I do not say that one should pray for that, uh, he's acknowledging that those false prophets have left the faith. They have abandoned the truth. They've, they've tasted of the goodness of the Lord but they've left it for bitter water. And so John writes that we shouldn't pray for them, and he's wondering aloud whether, whether or not we should be spending time, wasting time, if you will, praying for these false prophets. 
And if you're sitting here today wondering if, this, if you've committed this sin, um, then the wondering of that really in and of itself is evidence that you have not committed this sin. If you're wondering about a loved one who has maybe possibly committed this sin, um, don't. Please don't. Uh, that's between them and the Lord. Continue to pray for your loved ones who don't know the Lord. Pray that he would work on their hearts. Remember, the Lord gets a hold of the souls of this world and shows them his love and his grace and his mercy. And if the Lord can get the attention of a Saul, then he can get a hold of your loved ones too. So continue to pray for them. Pray that they would come to repentance. And uh, mothers, this is where you come in. Uh, uh, fathers too, right? And grandmothers and grandfathers, but because it's Mother's Day, I get to pick on the moms in the congregation, right? <laughs> One of the most beneficial, valuable things you can do, moms, uh, for your children, young or old, is to pray for them. Your prayers to the Lord on their behalf are, are of more value than all the dirty diapers you've changed, all the runny noses that you've wiped, all the practices and games that you've chauffeured your kids kids too, all the lunches that you made, all the sleepless nights that you have spent. All, uh, we, we thank you, we recognize the value of that sacrifice that you've made for us, but, but please, moms and, and dads, know that one of the most beneficial things you can do is to pray for your children, because as we know, the Lord hears our requests. The Lord hears our requests. There's a, there's a third known known that John wants you to know for sure that you know, and it's this. It's found in verses 17 through 21. We know that God strengthens us as we battle sin. Look at these verses. I want to reread verse 17 and then go on. John writes, All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son has come and has given us understanding, so that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Again, John wants you to know that, that as you battle sin, God strengthens you. And as we ponder this known known, there are two important things that we need to wrestle with. And the first is this. The battle, believer, the battle against sin is real. John says that all wrongdoing is sin. Uh, last week, Pastor Lloyd talked about this concept of sin from Romans chapter 3. And he rightly described it as, uh, the, the concept of sin, as an archery term, right? It means to miss the mark. You, you've notched the arrow, right? You've pulled back on the string. And you've let the arrow fly only to miss that bullseye. Anything less than a bullseye, a perfect centered shot every single time is sin, is missing the mark. 
And that's God's standard of perfection, uh, this target of, of whole, perfect holiness. Uh, he says things like, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Don't have any idols. Honor your father and mother. Love one another. And as you try to do that, releasing those arrows, anytime you, you, you do that and you miss the mark, you miss the bullseye of, of perfection and holiness, even by a little bit, you sin. And you are not alone. All believers sin. Earlier in this letter, John wrote that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. God's truth is not in us then. And this truth is reiterated in, in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All people, people believers included, sin. And I think specifically John was warning his readers of straying away from, from false Christs and especially from idols. He concludes his letter with this reminder, little children, keep yourselves from idols. <laughs> kind of seems like a, a unique, silly way to end the letter, right? <laughs> keep yourself from idols. But, but his readers, again, were being tempted away from, from following Christ to following these false gods, idols that the culture worshipped. Not only like the Romans uh, worshipped Zeus, Athenia, Aphrodite, uh, and the like, but also, uh, as John wrote earlier in chapter 2, these idols and these false gods were anything that draws your attention away from the one true God. Anything that you put our, your hope, your faith, your trust in other than the Lord God Almighty. Uh, this is first first commandment stuff, right? You shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord. And it's not only idolatry that's sinful. John says all wrongdoing is sin. All wrongdoing, all unrighteousness. If you're a, a lawyer type who's looking for loopholes, you're not going to find any in this verse. All wrongdoing, hatred, Envy, greed, gossip, theft, coveting, lies, racism, pornography, manipulating, abuse. You want me to go on? I could continue all day listing sins, eventually finding the sin that you struggle with. These are wrong. These are sinful. And believer, you are called to battle those sins. You are called to fight and to struggle against them. In Romans, Paul describes the, the two natures that are in uh, a Christian, right? The old fleshly nature that leads us away from Christ and the new spirit-filled nature that drives us to Christ and to the cross. And these two natures, Paul says, live together in you and they're constantly fighting one another. The story is told, and I don't know the source of it. Uh, some say it originates with the Inuits up in, in, uh, in Alaska and northern Canada. Some say it, it started with uh, Chief Sitting Bull. Others say this legend comes from the Cherokee people. Uh, but the story is told of a, of a grandfather describing to his grandson the inner struggle between good and evil that's constantly going on within him. And the grandfather said this, he said, a fight is going on in me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, pride, uh, ego. And he continued, the other wolf, the other wolf is good. He is joy, he is peace, he is love, he is serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, faith. And he said, the same fight between these wolves is going on inside of you and every other person too. And the grandson thought about that for a moment. And then he asked his grandfather, well, which wolf will win in the fight? 
And the old sage simply replied, the wolf that you feed is the one that will win, right? And it's like that in the spiritual sense as well. Your your two natures, the old fleshly nature, sinful that you've had from from your mother's womb and, and the new nature created in you by Christ, given to you at the moment of your salvation. These two natures live within you and the one that you feed, the one that you nurture, the one that you care about wins. Martin Luther described Christians as being simultaneously a saint and a sinner. You are a saint, believer, not necessarily in the Roman Catholic's iteration of the word saint, but you are a saint because you have been washed in, your, washed in the blood of Jesus. He has made you his own child in baptism. You have believed on his name. You are a saint because you have been justified, declared not guilty of your sins for Jesus' sake and because of his death on the cross in your place and on your behalf. But believer, you are a sinner as well. And just because you have been justified, just because the Lord is full of steadfast love and mercy and grace for his own, does not mean that you get a free pass in your sin and continue living guilt-free in that. You cannot say to yourself, well, God isn't really that serious about sin. He he loves me and and so I'll, I'll go on living in this sin, telling these lies, hating that group of people, watching pornography or whatever the pet sin is, right? I'll just go on doing it and then I'll ask for forgiveness and he'll have to forgive me. That's not how forgiveness works. Unfortunately, though, that that belief isn't anything new. Christians in the church of Rome had that same attitude when Paul wrote to them back in the day in the first century. He said in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he said, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? Shall we keep doing these sinful things in order that God will forgive us and that God's grace and love can keep on being perpetuated? What's Paul's response? He says, by no means, absolutely not. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Believer, you have been crucified with Christ. You must continually, daily battle against the sin that so easily entangles you. You must resist this. You must be, and you can't be passive in your resistance either. You must be active. You can't be sitting back letting things happen. If you are, your sin will run over you like a Mack truck. You must be be continually, actively putting to death the deeds of your flesh. Feed the right wolf. And you know that as you battle in the resistance of your sin, Jesus is to be your constant source of strength and protection from the enemy. You're not expected to beat back the attacks of the enemy in your own strength. But you do so in the strength and the power that only the Lord can provide. In your battles, the author of Hebrew encourages you to look to Jesus, to consider him. He is your strength and your power. And uh, we'll finish or conclude with these verses here. Hebrews chapter 12, he writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily or so closely entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated on the right hand of the throne of God. And then he says this in verse 3. He says, Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Look to Jesus. Consider him. Let him be on the forefront of your thoughts each day. 
you will find the strength you need first and foremost in his word. And you'll also find it, by the way, in his people. There is so much value, isn't there, in gathering together with fellow Christians, not only here on Sunday mornings, but there's infinite, there is infinite value in what we are doing, right? Uh, but in small groups as well. Get plugged in. Find uh, some solid Christian brothers and sisters that you can share your burdens with, your struggles with, who will pray for you. Let your brothers and sisters in Christ be there for you. Uh, and you can be there for them as they battle sin as well. They can point you to the love and the grace and the mercy found in Jesus. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for Jesus, for his death on the cross for us in our place and on our behalf. Father, and as we battle sin, uh, we acknowledge that we cannot do this on our own. Lord, we, we know that we struggle with sin, each one of us uh, dealing with something, uh, multiple somethings at a time. Lord, and we pray that you would give us the strength to fight those things. Sanctify us according to your truth. Your word is truth, God. Empower us to, to beat the sin in our lives because of Christ and because of what he has done for us. May we keep him at the front and center of our minds this week. In Jesus' name, amen.